Thank you for joining us today. I'm Sandy Reynolds, and I'm here with my co-host, Patty M. Hall, and a very special guest, Dr. Sharon Blackie. If you aren't familiar with her work, I'm confident that after this episode, you are going to be heading to your favorite bookstore and looking for her work immediately. Dr. Sharon Blackie is an award-winning writer and internationally recognized teacher whose work sits at the interface of psychology, mythology, and ecology. Her highly acclaimed books, courses, lectures, and workshops are focused on the development of the mythic imagination and on the relevance of our native myths, fairy tales, and folk traditions to the personal, social, and environmental problems we face today. And there are many of those. Sharon Blackie has written four books of fiction and nonfiction, including the best-selling If Women Rose Rooted, which if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that I've talked about that book many times and the impact it had on me. Her 2018 book, The Enchanted Life, and her book, Foxfire, Wolfskin, and Other Stories of Shape-Shifting Women. Her writing has appeared in numerous places, including The Guardian, The Irish Times, The Scotsman, and more. She's been interviewed by the BBC and other major broadcasters. Patty and I are big fans of her work. And Patty, you're going to tell us a little bit about Dr. Blackie's latest book and her work. Thanks, Sandy. I am honored to welcome Sharon Blackie today and not a little intimidated by the task of putting our listeners' toes into the deep waters of Sharon Blackie's vast body of work. Today, we're going to try to focus on Foxfire Wolf skin and other stories of shape-shifting women, but I know that our discussion will draw on the themes that Sharon Blackie's nonfiction books explore. I've been a student of Sharon Blackie's courses, including This Mythic Life, her year-long program, and have learned, have leaned on her nonfiction books as an expert resource for many years. In my writing life, I've sought out Dr. Blackie's wisdom when exploring topics at the nexus of myth and biology, specifically on the topics of giants and wolves. Her exploration of and teaching around what I respectfully and almost sacredly call story as an umbrella term are beyond compare, in my opinion. In the language of her own author's note, the stories in Foxfire Wolfskin have their basis in older tales. In some cases, they're reimaginings, and in others, they possess beings and motifs from older tales. The stunning collection also features captivating illustrations by Helen Nicholson that made me so appreciate the beautiful hardbound edition, which I have. 13 stories about shape-shifting women have all of the literary elements of powerful short stories blended with Sharon Blackie's flair for the elements of myth and the language styling of traditional folk and fairy tales. The women we encounter have characteristics as varied as the animal forms they sometimes take. These are women who embody a power that is often unseen. I know we all want to explore the intentions, content, and spirit of Fox Wolf Skin, so let's get right to it. Dr. Sharon Blackie, our gratitude for taking time to meet Reframe Your Life listeners and to meet us during this time, which is still the extended period of COVID, as we call it. Yeah, very much so. And thank you so much for inviting me. I get invited onto all kinds of podcasts, but actually very rarely to talk about specific books. So this is a treat for me as well. Wonderful. <laughs> Great. Well, we've been... Uh... And we have a new tradition on our podcast where we ask our guests the first question is really what we call the COVID question. And I know that you moved in the middle or at the start of the pandemic, and you are also no stranger to moving. So I thought I'd adjust the question a little bit for you and ask you how this move has been for you and your work and what was different for you moving during a pandemic. Well, I guess really I moved, I wanted to move back to Wales for very complex reasons, which I won't go into because that in itself would be a podcast. But I really felt that it was a part of approaching elderhood. So I'm 59 right now, I'll be 60 next year. And I had this whole question come up, you know, what kind of elder do I want to be and where, where do I want to be at? What, where does my work feel most needed? So I came back to Wales um, really for, for community as much as anything else, for a community of people who perhaps thought like me, um, where my work was perhaps more valued. And then, of course, you know, we landed here literally a day before lockdown. And so we have not had communities. So that was a bit of a, a shock to the system. And it has been not at all what I expected in the sense that 
for me, that whole process of lockdown, that's where I guess many people was, I didn't have anything to say. You know, I, I wasn't jumping back into my work here and back into community and doing this and doing that. I literally lost my voice, not in a negative way. It was just like there were so many people out there shouting about this and shouting about this, that, and we must do this and we must do the other. And I just felt exhausted by it all. And, and literally, I don't think I went on social media for about a month. You know, I had nothing to say. So it was a really interesting process for me. Um, the move was a nightmare. As you can imagine, we were out running borders closing. Uh, we got here in an old house that we didn't know how it worked and our movers didn't want to bring our furniture for a month. So it was challenging, but, the, but we were left with the bones of a house that we could not really leave. And this fascinating and actually very wonderful silence with which mm. to, to do nothing but just to experience. So yeah, it's been an interesting time. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't imagine. It's just navigating everyday life has been a challenge. So moving the way you have, I'm sure, had a many, many challenges for you. And mm. the 60s are great. I'm two years into them almost. And <laughs> so far, so good. But I do appreciate the uh, question that they, that it, this decade seems to raise in what what's next. Like this is sort of looking down at this final or third act thinking about what we what we want and what kind of life we want to create going forward so good for you of actually taking action on those dreams and and mm -hmm. intentional about Absolutely. it um, I'm sitting on starting where this elderhood idea is I know a place you're going in your writing in future so we'll we'll pick up we'll pick your brain about that later but my current next memoir you know how it changes day to day is called where to next because i've literally been sitting on this precipice of i'm not mom of a sick child i've been a writer most of my life what where to next means just what you said and i'm so intrigued by what you said about who do I want to be? What do I want to be? How do I want my work to serve? And for you, I know it's the feeling of your work being in the right place is, must be so important. And do you feel you're in the right place? Is there a right place? Uh, for me, there is. And I guess I think we're all different in our relationship to place. So I don't mean to make any sweeping statements that, you know, I want to, to push on anybody. But to me, place has been the biggest teacher of my life, much more so than people. And that's not to say that people haven't been important. So and a lot of this is kind of retrospective. You know, you look back at where you happen to have been at a particular time and you think, my God, that couldn't have happened anywhere else. I needed to make that move. I needed to make that change. I needed to learn that lesson. I could only have made it in that place. So when I feel a very strong sense of pull to a place, I have a tendency to trust it, not blindly, but to trust it. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting looking back. I wouldn't have said this at the time, but my first novel, which uh, was published in... Um, 1987 or thereabouts, The Long Delirious Burning Blue, or what my husband calls The Long Delirious Burning Title, um, <laughs> was very much also about place. And it was almost by accident. You know, it was about the character's relationship with place and how the mythology and stories of that place seeped into them and changed them. So I guess I was doing it kind of without thinking about it, oh. even way back then. So that's very meta. My, my millennial children would say that's really meta. <laughs> <laughs> but you know place place has been our lives and uh and it has been a lot of this podcast during covid mm -hmm. interestingly enough and uh we've spoke to a canadian author living in britain um jane christmas about her book her latest book is her fifth or sixth memoir i think and it's uh, about the 30 plus moves of her life and what she has taken in each place for her it's about the focusing on what the next place might be, I think she would say. And the memoir actually has her go into what she thinks she gained in each place. But I was speaking to her recently and she said she didn't feel the work was changed by the place that she was in because she had the work in mind about uh, as she was moving along. But yet this book that she's now written is a retrospective of all of the mm. places that she's lived, architecturally speaking, more than anything but of course she lived near Toronto here and then now she's been in various places in the UK it is fascinating but for you the myth and the mythology of the place and the ecology and in fact the you remind us the geology of the place has been so um, permeable uh, with your own skin and uh, that's I think what I love most about your work is that you allow yourself to feel into a place and be imbued by it and that's um, 
I wish we could all have that embodiment in the way that you do. Thank yes. you. Yeah, I think that's to me that's where the voices come from. That's where the characters come from. That's where the stories live. It li they live in the land, mm -hmm. and so my work springs from wherever I am. It does. I could not have written if women were rooted while I was, um, you know, at the edges of the world in the Outer Hebrides. I couldn't have done it. I, it was a, it was the wrong place for it. When I went back to Ireland, which was softer, gentler, warmer, cozier, that was the place where I could sit down and give that book out. So mm -hmm. to me, it's very much the actual process of the work as well as the inspiration for the work is very much tied up with with the place and i don't know what will happen here but i hope it's the right place to do oh and, and i love that i love that you'll allow that to happen you know an example yes. for the example for the readers and listeners is i can't i've never been able to lose my um the visceral experience of the woman in the last man standing who in fact I won't give away more about, let's call her the woman in the last man standing. She speaks about her rock. She speaks about that actual place, that definitive place of her emotional and psychological transformation as well as others. And uh, for me, I've never been able to lose the idea that she has this rock that's a promontory over this body of water. And of course, I won't give away more because the story is certainly one of the most compelling for me because I see her in my mind's eye, but that actual location um, you have the story so focused on that, that I think we all can look at landscape differently because of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, thank you. You are described as a mythologist with a specialization in Celtic studies, and you are the first mythologist that I've ever spoken to. It's not a, it's not something that we encounter every day in our lives. And I thought it would be interesting for our listeners, if you could just speak to exactly what a mythologist is and um, maybe talk a little bit, and we, we have talked about this in the intro before we even started recording, about the different types of stories that are often mistaken for myth and um, such as fairy tales or folklore. So I know that's a big question, so take it away. Yeah, I guess it's kind of difficult to define what a mythologist is because it's something that's very difficult to go study, you know, like the other ologies yes. that I've got, psychology and ecology and what have you, you can go away and do a degree in that. But it's very difficult to do a degree in mythology. But to me, what it is, it's a study of myth in the broadest sense, which means it's a study of the patterns, the narrative patterns, the beliefs, the assumptions that underlie our lives. And, you know, that is what a myth is. A myth is um, in most people's definition anyway, a story which a culture tells itself about how the world is. Not necessarily how it came to be, that's one type of myth, that's a creation myth, but how the world is and how you are as an individual and as a community supposed to be in it. So, you know, it's a fundamental story which attaches itself to people over a long period of time. And I am very interested in that, how the myths our culture tells us that we must be influences in ways that we don't even know. So it's not just about, to me, the kind of work that I do is not just about going back and reading the old myths of people in ancient civilizations. That's really important. We can learn a huge amount from them. But it's also an interrogating the myths that we are living by today. So for example, the myth of heroism, the myth of individualism, the myth of progress, you know, it helps you understand those patterns. And to me, that's very different from other types of narratives, which people tend to lump in together, which really aren't. So folk tales, for example, of which fairy tales is a subset, are a little bit different. They're the stories of the people. They're the stories of their world. They're the stories of their morals, of their longings, um, of their kind of smaller beliefs within the framework, if you like, of that mythic kind of society. So I see them as operating in very many ways. I love, I, you know, I, I'm as interested in fairy tales as I am in myth, but I don't think you can call yourself a fairy tale-ologist, so I don't, maybe a folklorist, <laughs> I don't know. So I don't know what that would be. But that, to me, is my passion. It's for understanding uh, what I and what I call the mythic imagination, which is working with those patterns, working with the characters, the archetypes that we see in the world around us, and yeah, losing, using them to illuminate who we are and, and what we become in life. 
I once had the conversation with uh, Emily Urquhart about this, having her try to break it down for me. We're both um, writers who happen to have what I call exceptional children with uh, a basis in our children's diseases. Emily Urquhart's daughter has albinism, my son with gigantism. And I remember saying, you know, if we define myth and fairy tale too specifically, I wonder if we'll find our children don't exist. Mm-hmm. And, but I love when you say that myth is understanding the world as it is, you know, it isn't the fictional longing for, or the, as you called it, you called it longings, I think, of a people and their wishes and hopes for the way the world might be. And for me, that's an, a pivotal difference. And when I read Foxfire Wolfskin, I wonder what they are to you. What, that, that, what type mm. of story are they for you? Yeah, they're, they're definitely, they would definitely fall into the kind of um, folktale category of which fairy tales or wonder tales, as they prefer to call them in some places, would be would be um, a, a subset. I don't believe in writing myth. Myths, to me, um, having studied it um, for a very, very many, many numbers of number of years, myth, you can't write myth. Myth happens. Myth happens oh, organically. Yeah. Uh, you can't just make a new cultural myth up. Um, yes. It happens by what happens in the culture. So I wouldn't dream of ever saying that I'd written a myth. Uh, you know, if I were a fantasy writer and I were doing some world building, um, for example, then I might incorporate some cultural myths in that world building. But for me to kind of like try to rewrite a myth, it, it seems like I'd be, I don't know, I'd be transgressing some kind of sacred, you know, mm-hmm. forbidden thing. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're fairy tales, they're wonder tales, they are, they are retellings of, of mm-hmm. um, old stories. Sandy, I, I wonder I, if you um, want to talk, talk about our favorites and uh, do you want to step into some of your favorites and what you loved most about it now that I've given away that Wolfskin is a particular favorite and the woman in Last Man Standing are my particular resonations. Yes. Well, it was, it was interesting for me because when I read um, Foxfire, I, um, it was a tough read for me. And I, I realized that I, I am not really versed in reading these kinds of stories. I found your other books much more accessible. And I was thinking about that when I was preparing for this interview, that is before we talk about our favorite stories, and I'll share what mine was, is there a way for readers to read these stories that's different from other books that we might not even know or have the, the familiarity with with fairy tales as adults and I don't know for me there was just it was a little it took a little bit of time to get into the type of reading. Interesting I don't know really is the answer to your question except that I would say that the point that I what I was trying to do here was not remake the narratives you know it wasn't necessary Mm -hmm. although in some cases I have it wasn't to make the plot different it was to give voices to characters in old tales in a way that we might expect if those characters happened to us today what would they say who would they be the snow queen is probably the classic example which is in the book Mm -hmm. you know the snow queen back in the day was a bad character evil you know winter terrible what what in (laughs) what if the snow queen came to us in a world of global warming what would she have to say how would we see her so i suppose i would say don't enter into it you know as a plot driven set of stories it is they have plot um, but as a, a way of interrogating voices of archetypal characters who would be different if they came to us in 2020 than they would have been if they were collected by the Brothers Grimm in the 1700s. Mm, beautiful. Very helpful. I, I found myself going back to your chapter in The Enchanted Life on the Mythic Imagination to sort of help me get into a little bit of the the reading and to get out of my head and... Uh, stop looking at things so literally and analytically and just enter into them as a story. So it was, it was helpful for me. Clearly, I don't read a lot of <laughs> fiction. So I'm much more versed. And my I think I read a lot of self-help, which is why I really liked going back to my favorite story, meeting Baba Yaga, because I resonated with that story so much. And I, I liked it because I found it to be one of the the Uh, more humorous stories as well. Like I laughed out loud a lot reading that story. 
And I think it was because I was seeing myself in in the character uh, Cheryl or Beryl. Or I, I loved how you even had the play on words there and uh, on her name. But when I read that story, because it resonated with me so much, I had this feeling like, uh, is this a trick? Am I going to open this book tomorrow and the story's not in there? That was actually my experience. And when I woke up in the morning, I went and looked and I was like, yeah, it really was in there. Because <laughs> it had that <laughs> feeling to me that wouldn't that be the ultimate experience and you know where she goes to that that house and later tries to track it down and found out about it didn't exist in, to begin with and I thought wouldn't it be really great if if in reading this book there was some sort of magic and when I go back to find the story it doesn't exist either <laughs> the story went poof yes but I, I sorry thought it was I couldn't a- that I know. I thought it was a great commentary on those of us who find ourselves reading a lot of self-help and pursuing self-improvement and, you know, self-actualization. And that's a big part of our story. And that would be a lot of where I've spent um, my time. And so it was, it was really helpful for me to give me a different perspective on that. So thank you. Mm. Thank you. I love that story. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I don't know where that story came from. It was one of those, the, the way that I wrote those stories was very much to kind of sit with a a character in my mind very early in the morning during winter with the dogs kind of sleepy and just think just open myself to you know mm. I work a lot with the imagination and the imaginal world and what have you and just open myself to to letting those voices come out I don't mean in any crazy kind of channeling kind of way but just kind of just being kind of receptive in the way that I think some of the best writing comes from when you're writing fiction. Mm -hmm. And that voice just came. I have no idea where it came from, but that wicked kind of, yes, cackling (laughs) old Baba Yaga who just wasn't going to take any shit from anybody. That was really exactly what I wanted to convey. And we have to be able to laugh at ourselves, don't we really? You know, we We have to be able to see old women particularly as the tricksters who hold the mirror up to us. And boy, don't we need that sometimes. So absolutely. I wondered about, uh, to use the meta expression again, I wondered if you embodied the female characters in order to write them differently than they'd been written before. Again, I can speak to many of the women in here, but I wondered if you had to, and I love that you said sit with it, to think, okay, what would she have to say now? And a great example of the Snow Queen. You know, and I wondered, you know, does the Snow Queen know that for centuries, you know, she's been misunderstood, you know, is that, is, does she have something else she wants to say if she got to do her own retelling? And I wondered if there was a little personal mission in each of these for you to have us have a more rounded, well-rounded certainly experience of these female characters. I mean, they are incredibly talented and misunderstood because they have these hidden um, powers. I'll use powers. They have this hidden, each of them has something that isn't seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, you know, in terms of embodying, I mean, I'm sitting, you know, on, in a chair with a laptop, so there's only so much that you can do, but certainly I feel their voices kind of emotionally. Mm. I feel who they are as I'm writing it. You have to, I mean, they are quite, some of them are quite emotional stories um, and, and that's inevitable. You have to literally, I think, when you're writing fiction, be in the head of your character, feeling what seeing as your character even if you're not writing it in the first person. So yes, there was a great sense. I have a great deal of affection for every one of those characters because I felt that I kind of, in a sense, became it in order to be able to, to write it. And, you know, a lot of it was about this whole idea that fairy tales change. They're supposed to change. Yes. They tend to be more constant, generally speaking, or to change over a, you know, a more geological time frame. Um, but fairy tales are supposed to change with the times. And although we had that period in the, let's say the 1960s, 70s, where there were great feminist revisions of fairy tales by writers like Angela Carter. Yes. There haven't really been any that I have come across that have been powerfully rewritten for an age of environmental crisis. And so that was kind of what I wanted them to express. So it was their chance, in a curious kind of sense, it's their chance to to transform themselves. You know, I always think of archetypes and characters as being in their own process of becoming, not just us, but them too. And so we have to allow them to change with the times and to grow. And so I felt it was almost like I was giving life to to these Mm. characters, to these old archetypes that otherwise we would have solidified on the page back in, you know, 1865 or something. Right. And they they would never have changed nor us with them. And we don't live in a world 
where change isn't constant. I mean, having mm-hmm. said that, we're not just having an environmental crisis on top of that. We're having every other crisis that COVID has wrought <laughs> on us, including economical, social, and mental health, right? Right down to the personal level. The, and the, the personal level of listening, you as a listener, but also the characters in the story as listeners in a way to what's happening to the worlds that they inhabit, I found powerful again with the woman in, um, in last man standing, she found herself done with whatever it was she was here to do. And that hit me and stayed with me. Um, even in the rereading that she had, again, I I hate to give away the stories, but she had, she had had seven husbands and lost this one. And his powerful attachment to his dog is very emotional and her attachment to him, but that her work here was done in the same way that maybe today's superheroes might say, but she had been listening to the world and she knew that her work in this realm was done. And I wondered about that environmental message of the listener is that if we're not observing and listening, we might miss the kind of trauma the world really is experiencing. We might as well. And in that story particularly though, and in a number of the others, you know, one of the things that I was very concerned about was to offer stories with consequences because I hated when I was a child and and into adulthood all of those stories where you know there we go uh, happy endings yeah exactly or or just simply you know there you go the the hunter has taken advantage of the fisherman has taken advantage of the woman being stolen her skin that's it poor woman you know end of story and that doesn't seem to be very acceptable and in that story that you're talking about the last man standing really it was her saying world you've got to shape up I'm going I'm going. I'm going because you've got to take responsibility. You've got to shape up. And until you do, I I ain't coming back. So a lot of it is about that. They're not gentle stories, many of them. I mean, some of them are, but they're just to to kind of say, we really have got to get a grip here. And those, those, the Snow Queen is exactly the same. You know, those characters would be telling us that this is not acceptable. And if you don't do it, then, you know, we're going to do something for uh, that will help you along that path. A little bit like the coronavirus. Hey, couldn't we write a great fairy tale about that? It's a similar kind of thing. I've read and reread Wolfskin many times. Uh, It isn't just my affinity for wolves or the study of the mythology around wolves. Uh, This is a powerful story for me as a woman. The idea of one's identity, spirit, and self being stolen, of being without one's skin in every sense, and then celebrating the embodiment when she retrieves her skin. I am giving away the plot. Literally the return of self, the return of her spirit, everything that she is. And I wondered how it felt for her to be skinless, to be without her wolf skin. I'm writing about that in midlife, what it is for us during this period of time, but also during COVID of this exploration of who we are, because we're all pivoting to use the business term in what's coming next, because we can't, we can't quite plan ahead, can we? So in many ways, I think we all feel skinless. We feel like she does in wolfskin, as we aren't sure who will be in a post-COVID world. Perhaps there won't be a post-COVID world. There will simply be the next space on which we put our skins back on, as it were, to not overuse your story. But I'd love to have you speak to that about retrieving our skins and how that is an empowerment and an acceptance of transformation is hopefulness, really, about moving into the future. Yeah, I guess to me that place where um, you've lost your skin and you haven't got it back again is kind of a place between stories, isn't it? Uh, it's, just, it's a time of transition. Um, it's an initiation in a sense. It's a very difficult time and we all have to go through them. Otherwise, we don't grow. We don't transform. Uh, some of us may never get our skins back is the sad part, um, but, but it is really that necessary empty period as I was saying my own response to it to the COVID situation has been where it's just like I've got nothing to say right now I you know I'm, I'm empty I know what the old story was I have no idea what the new story is going to be but there is something yes. beautiful in that empty waiting what seems to be fallow ground but really isn't because you've got all this stuff happening in the background like when yes. you and it's winter so to me, that space of being skinless is actually where it all happens. You know, and, and that isn't in the story, it's in none of the stories, because it doesn't make a good story. Empty <laughs> ground doesn't make a good story. But to me, that's a really, really beautiful period. And 
you know, this story of Wolfskin, which I'm, I, I'm going to read in a little while because it's very short, um, is a very simple one. But the, the, the archetypal story of skin stealing and skin losing is the old Scottish story of the Selkie, you know, the seal right. man who comes to the beach once every month of the full moon, takes off her skin, becomes the human woman. Her skin is, to cut a long story short, stolen by a fisherman and she is made to stay with him for seven years and that sense of dryness of um of you know of, of drying out of almost being on the verge of dying really kind of um is 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 the archetypal story but there but you see that you see that difficulty in her a lot more than you do in this story of wolfskin which i based on a croatian tale you know you see that process of almost dying Yes. Um, of, of, of this is not this is not without consequences uh, and so to me that's why i think these stories are very very powerful because somewhere deep in us as women we know that we have to go through these really dark periods we have to go into the underworld we have to go on the initiatory journey and everything everything is at stake mm. um, and that's the interesting part of it thank you for that that's a yeah. it's a it's always lovely to hear what you thought was happening as you wrote it and what you wanted her to embody for us. And that lesson is loud and clear for me in all of the stories in the book, but in particular, this one, the, that fallow period, that empty period that we're in now, I think if I was going to use one word about this story that you're going to read for us, it is hope, but, uh, and perhaps secondarily empowerment. And as women, we often have to make these choices of what comes next, because I think society has scripted for us what stage of life we're in. And if we are going to, predict the next one and make it more mine by pulling our skin back on, then we need the inspiration of one another. And she, your character in Wolfskin is an inspiration for all of us, I think. I think I th it, to me, it's always, it is about this con concept of consequences. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the hunter doesn't get to steal the skin and, um, and there are no consequences, but it's also just that sense of women just, and I love this in, in the oldest stories, you know, the old Irish stories, the, the, um, the old stories of Britain. It's just the women are standing there saying, no, no, actually, no. And it's only in the later <laughs> stories that we have all of these pretty kind of characters, not always, but we have these pretty characters who are, you know, kind of, yeah. appear to be powerless in, in their own demise. So I like that. It's not because it's a story of revenge so much as it's just a, a story of a woman saying, you don't get to do that. Sorry, I'm right. not having that. I take Off it back. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Yes, I think that came through to me with uh, a lot of these stories about, you know, agency and, and women just taking back their their power and their voice and their, their strength. And uh, I think that's why this book will really resonate with so many women today, you know, and uh, as we, as you said, are, are entering into this new time and what does that look like and what does that mean for us? I think it's important to have stories where we aren't victims, where we, we do have agency, even in a time of uncertainty, it, it, mm -hmm. we're not powerless. Yeah, and where we're not anymore, uh, well, if we right. were, I was brought up to be a nice girl, you know, that was the, yes. the most important thing you could be, you could be nice don't cause any trouble, do everything you're told to do. These women don't do that. And we have to even, you know, decades on, <laughs> we think we've done feminism sometimes, but decades on, we're still doing it. Ways, we have to learn that for different times, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. And we're finding new heroes, aren't we? And um, will you read into Wolfskin for us? And then maybe we could, we'll step into speaking about the writing process a little more after. And I'm looking forward to hearing you read Wolfskin for us. Thank you. Well, this is just to say that this is a, a, a revisioning of an old Croatian um, folktale. Say you go alone into the woods. It's winter and you're hungry. So you take up your rifle, put on your deerskin jacket and your boots lined with rabbit fur. Off you trot. Say it's dawn and the light in the woods is thin. Air clear and snow on the ground to give the game away. Crow calling your name ready to roost owl hooting its warning into fire-filled sky. Fledgling morning, Orion no more than a glimmer now, hunter hanging over hunter. But say you don't think much of all of that. You're there to kill your dinner, not to admire the scenery. Say you're tired. You were up late the night before, slim picking in the woods, and on you walk. Say you're tired as evening falls, the rabbit is still warm. A long way back home, and the mill house, which takes you by surprise, invites you in. So you go inside to spend the night. Tomorrow, there might be hind. Make a fire in the parlour, kin and skin and cook the rabbit. 
You climb into the loft to sleep. Leave the fire burning in the grate, hot air rises. Leave broth and bones in the pan for breakfast. Say you hear the door open just as you're falling asleep. Door creaks, just like all the best stories say. Say a wolf comes in, sniffs, smells something tasty. Say she goes to the fire, raises herself up on her hind legs, shouts, skin down, skin down. Sure enough, down comes her skin, slips out of it, and out slips a woman. The mill house is her home. Hangs the skin up on a peg behind the door, goes back to the fire, gnaws bones, drinks warm broth, falls asleep on the rush mat. Say you watch this from a hole in the loft's wooden floor. Say you creep down the ladder and snatch away the wolf woman's skin. Nail it to the mill wheel, mill wheel, tight and true. Walk over to the fire and nudge the wolf woman with your foot. Say she screams, skin on me, skin on me. But it's the mill wheel the skin is on. The wolf woman cries. Say you laugh. Ha 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 ha. You know the rest. Wolf woman has to marry man because man has her skin. Man moves into enchanted mill. Wolf woman cleans and cooks. Same old story. Say you tell her you like stories. Make her tell you stories each night before bed. Wolf stories. They make you laugh. Promise to give her skin back if she tells you a story you really like. But say you actually decide to sell the skin. It'll fetch a pretty price. Didn't even have to skin the wolf. It came ready-made for sale. Say the wolf woman sees that her skin is gone and cries. Say you laugh. Ha ha ha. Say the wolf woman begins pregnant with hope, but ends up pregnant with a man-child. Say the man-child kills his brother Hope in the womb. Don't you like this story? But say you do. You don't seem to be laughing now. Well then, say the man-child hears people whisper that his mother is really a wolf. Mama, he says, are you a wolf? What nonsense, says the mother and turns away. Say the man-child asks his father whether his mother is a wolf. Father says yes. Man-child asks father where his mother's skin is. Father says he sold it. Say the man-child starts to wonder whether he is a wolf too. Asks his mother how to find his wolf skin. Say she tells him only his mother can show him how to discover his skin. And only when she's a wolf. <laughs> the boy cries. Say you laugh for the third time. Ha ha ha. Say the father sends the man-child over to the preacher's house. Takes a fresh buckskin and a basket of buns. Manchild smells his mother there, but mother is at home. Manchild sniffs, follows his nose, follows his wolf nose to the wolf skin thrown on the seat of the preacher man's wooden bench. Say he goes home and says to his mother, Mama, Mama, I know where your skin is. Say the wolf woman has lost her skin, but still has a wolf's bones. Say the wolf woman has lost her skin, but still has a wolf's heart. Say the wolf woman has lost her skin, but still has a wolf's eyes. Say the wolf woman creeps out in the dark while her husband is away hunting and steals through the window of the preacher's house. Skin on me, she says, and on the skin comes. Skin reaches for her, clamps around her, tightens, caresses her like a lover and she shudders. Skin flows all over her, down her back, around her thighs. Skin wraps itself softly around her throat, loosens her hurt heart. Say the hunter comes home to find his wife gone, and a wolf sitting in the kitchen. The cub is alongside. Say the wolf growls and bears its teeth. Say you never see it coming. Say the wolf gets the last laugh. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> was very well done. I think there's something powerful about hearing these stories read and told, uh, you know, the oral tradition. And just um, <clears throat> when you read them, sometimes I would find myself reading parts of them out loud because there's just yep. something in it. And uh, I so appreciated you reading that. So thank you. Thank you. Part of it is the, is the voice, you know, and uh, oh, yes. part of this the part of the whole process of, of writing this was um the process of thinking okay what how would they talk you know, this right. is a wolf woman she's not going to speak in whole sentences she's going to speak rather strangely i mean it's got to be coherent it's got to be a story but how can you convey that sense of this woman is really different 
Mm-hmm. And that's part of the challenge, I think. There, she has a lot of mm-hmm. feelings too, right? And then that moment where she knows she's in absolute rapture when her skin is back on her, you know, she doesn't need to tell us what she feels. We're feeling it as that's happening. And I love that moment. I indulged this um, passion I have for the oral and I uh, purchased the audiobook as well. So I could hear the actors and act- yeah. the actresses uh, do this. And um, but I was so looking forward to hearing you and I feel, I feel like it was a gift that I'll take it as an early birthday present that you read this for <laughs> us because the ha 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 is everything yes. because it changes from society and him who embodies, who is the emblematic of society. And then she gets the last laugh. And I think, isn't that the ultimate consequence, right? Is that uh, all is right with the world for her. I I can't tell you how much that speaks to a power that I need to find inside me <laughs> very, very often. <laughs> the uh, fiction, nonfiction, to ask you some sort of writerly questions, which is uh, I've been, I'm always fascinated by genre busters, by I have a, a friend, Maria Much, who has written in so many genres and it is it speaks to talent and gift, but also this deep curiosity of writers I haven't read your novel, but now that you've described the long, delirious, burning blue, um, I will go back to find it because I know that these early intentions that you had for seeing myth alive in the world obviously come from it. But you moved from a novel, which is how it's spoken of, and then into the nonfiction books, these glorious, massive works of nonfiction, and now to the stories. And I wonder, can you share a little bit about how that progression has felt for you as a writer to move? Has it felt natural? And it goes back to this, you saying you sit with it and you wait in this fallow period for the next project to come. And is that how it's been for you? Have you followed what felt it was coming next? Um, it's kind of a big, bigger question than it might appear. I, I think I would like to start by saying that to me, the processes for fiction and nonfiction are completely different, completely okay. different. No matter how inspired it may be, nonfiction is work. Oh, yeah. It's work. It's not that there isn't some inspiration and some imagining and what have you, but there's research to do. There's a point to make. There's a thread that you have to make coherently. Yes. It's all about structure. Um, it's a, I find it harder. Um, I find it harder to love. Um, I love the product um, when I've done it, but mm, it's, it's work. Whereas fiction, oh boy, um, I, I only ever wanted to be a fiction writer. Um, I never really liked nonfiction all that much when I was younger. And it was really very interesting having written my first book as a novel, as I said, it was published eventually. So I was writing that in the early 80s, early mid 80s, say. And um, I didn't then write any more fiction until Foxfire Wolfskin, which was completed a couple of years ago. And it was like sinking back into a very comfortable old skin. <laughs> it was just like, oh, this is wonderful. This is beautiful. It's still hard work. But at that process of just sitting there and feeling as if something is coming through you and the more creative voice elements of it, I just found very beautiful. So mm-hmm. I think I am a natural fiction writer, but then I have this calling, um, yes. this genuine calling, this passion for which, which is why I started out life, I guess, as a psychologist for helping people transform and helping them transform through story and through myth and through all kinds of other wonderful creative and expressive processes. And I'm so passionate about that as well that it, you know, that requires nonfiction because I can't see very many people in person, but really the transition from fiction to nonfiction was not a decision. It was an absolute accident. Uh, I was editing some nonfiction at the time, nature writing, basically. Uh, We produced a big um, color glossy nature writing magazine in the UK, kind of um, founded on the US horizon. Orion and um, an agent out of the blue, uh, having read read a couple of my editorials of this magazine, approached me one day and said, have you ever thought about writing a a book on place and belonging? Well, I hadn't, but then of course I did. But to cut a very long story short, by the time it came to it, I couldn't write a simple nature writing book on place and belonging. That wasn't my passion. I had to write a book about myth. And with the help of a very wonderful publisher, um, Hannah (laughs) McDonald of September Publishing, it who allowed me kind of more leeway than a startup independent publisher ought to do with a lot of experience in big publishing um it turned into if women are as rooted and that was kind of oh. that really so it was an it was i i never intended to write that book 
Never. Wow. Oh, that's fascinating because it has been, uh, it's, it's a game changer for so many of us. And mm-hmm. I'm sure it is, uh, is it fair to say it's the one that most people speak to you about most often? Yeah. I mean, it's sold remarkably. It's sold remarkably by word of mouth. It never had a, right. um, it never had a, mm-hmm. a full-blown media review. I don't think they knew what to do with it. Um, of course it not. It keeps on going. You know, it was published in 2016 and it still is selling and selling mm-hmm. and selling and people are buying it for their friends and their family. So I think that's, yes, that is for sure. Um, the most um, prominent book and it's curious. It really does feel, and I don't mean this in any disingenuous way, it feels like I wrote the book, I gave it everything, and now it's out in the world doing all kinds of weird stuff of its own. It's nothing to do with me. I really right. look at it sometimes and I think, gosh, again, you know, did Who I are you? Yes. And it was very personal. And that was Hannah, my um, editor, publisher, saying that if you want to tell other people how to live, basically, you'd better tell them how you've lived and all the mistakes as well. So it's just like I'm a very private person. That was very difficult. But I think that's what made the book, in a sense, you know, that it did very much come from the heart. Absolutely. So in a sense, that was a bit of fiction, kind of like, you know, that story woven through. And I think that's what kept me going through it. In that way, memoir teaches us. Oh, I'm sorry, Sandy. In that way, that memoir teaches us by example. It is... um, it is memoir-esque as well as does all the other things. And it introduced us to you. And I hope and believe, and I think I can understand and speak for other readers, that that's why it has this longevity and this legacy is because it introduces us to you and you are your own very complex character. And the passion that you have to teach is comes through in If Women Rose Rooted and the introduction of that to you, as well as your own fallibility and that's, that's what my, I that's what I look for in writers that I adore. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of people say. And it's curious to me because it's just like, well, how can you teach if you don't if you haven't learned from your own mistakes and you're not prepared to talk to them about them to other people? And that was how I learned, you know. And, and the, writing that book was quite a it was quite a deep experience because I got to go back through my whole life looking at all of my mistakes. That was great, uh, and then thinking about. But the thing about it was, and this is why, in the end, I, I always remain passionate about it. Was is I beat myself up for a number of years about a couple of the mistakes in that book, career choices yes. mostly, and maybe marriages, um, first marriage, and, and what have you. But I beat myself up for such a long time and argued that I had failed and didn't feel entitled then to live a better life or to to talk to people or to have the audacity to suggest to people that I had anything, you know, any wisdom to convey to them. And I think that writing that book and looking back on it taught me that actually I had grown, that what I thought of as negative experiences actually, or or experiences that I was a little bit ashamed of sometimes, like working for a tobacco company for a few years, boy, that was a big one. I'm still getting over that, that that actually made me who I am. And without that experience, I wouldn't have been able to convey what I had conveyed. So it's not a process of, you know, back excusing yourself. It's just, boy, I saw it in context for the first time. And then what I wanted to do was to say to other people, look, you have to look at your life like this as well. All of your mistakes aren't mistakes. They're not mistakes. It's like there's this path that we think we're on through life, you know, and we all make steps off to the left or the right of it. But it's that process of coming back to it with what you've learned on the side journeys that makes it so rich. Otherwise, wouldn't it be a dull story for all of us? And that (laughs) process of writing the book, the way that I did really made me learn that for my own life. And then, yeah, I just wanted everyone to feel that. Mm. When you said that you didn't intend to write the book, I immediately thought of a, a something I read Elizabeth Gilbert wrote and she talked about the muse and how um, the book will want to be written. And it's like this book wanted to be written, I think. And you, you were uh, the person that it chose to write it. And uh, I, I love it because that book prompted me to do a two year wilderness course, which was something I never would have done had I not read your book realized that I wanted to really get in touch with the land where I live. And I just looked and I found an adult course and I ended up doing things I couldn't imagine I would have done prior to reading this book. So thank you. Oh, that's lovely. That's lovely to hear. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We spoke about these massive pieces of nonfiction and uh, Sandy and I are both nonfiction writers. Um, I, I have, I'll say dappled in fiction, but it hasn't been my calling. And I know what it is to step into books that require research 
sources, uh, exposition, uh, all of the skills of writing, but yours and your courses, my goodness, are so heavily, heavily mm-hmm. um, feathered together with the research, the references, the other tellings of things, other people's, um, other people's takes on what you are teaching. And I wonder right down to the process, uh, how do you do it? This glorious amount of information that you weave into books like The Enchanted Life, for example, where the references are one over the other over the other. First of all, you must have the most incredible organization system as well as memory. And I've always had a curiosity about how you manage the body of material that you want to fit into the teaching elements of the books. I don't know. I've always been, I've always loved to learn stuff. You know, I'm kind of an eternal student in in one way. So what I often like about the process of writing a book is it, it forces me to be disciplined and to, or, or a course, an online course, is it forces me to be disciplined and go away and, and read um, as much as I can around the subject because I think that is a real problem today, you know, that we, we have fallen, so many people have fallen out of the habit of doing that. Yes. And there is a tendency to um, grasp at the last theory that you've read or the only one that you've read and not really to understand that there are different ways of, of viewing something out there or that maybe what you've read actually isn't very accurate and it's been superseded mm. so it's partly a, a kind of sense of, of wanting people to understand how the world has been what the kind of past truth is if I may use that word in order then to revision it for themselves so there is that sense of no, you've got to know what's gone on before you can actually, you know, authentically create a future. You've got to understand history in order to create create a future. It's that kind of idea. So that's part of the passion is that that it, I feel a, an obligation to understand um, the world as it as it is, rather than the world that I that I want to be. But it is very hard work. Yeah, you know, I've done that. I've written PhD theses and MA dissertations and all of the rest of it. And it's part of a similar kind of process. I don't enjoy that part of it. I don't. Um, I enjoy the. I don't enjoy the constructing of nonfiction. You know, the first moments where you start to to put it together and write it down on the page. I enjoy the tweaking when it's two thirds done and the actual. That's where it gets the creative vision, mm-hmm. I suppose. And the more interesting stuff perhaps really starts to be overlaid upon it. So I'm making it sound like it's a terrible thing to do. Of course, I'm not <laughs> to be a writer, but it is, gosh, it is hard work, you know, and I'm looking at my next book, um, which is going to be a work of nonfiction. I said, I would never write another one after the Enchanted Life. I'm never going to do this again, but hey, that's, that's life. Um, well, you you can't you can't just bury the lead that way since we're going yes. to ask you in a little bit what's coming next. Oh, okay. Do tell okay. and is it <laughs> is it stepping into the elder life? Is or am I yeah. projecting? No, that is exactly what it is. And I think um, well, it it I woke up in the middle of the night one night and I don't know what I was dreaming before or after, but I remember waking up in the middle of the night and saying, "Hagitude," and I went back to sleep again. I woke up in the morning and thought, "What on earth?" Um, and Hagitude is the title of my next book. Um, and it's hag, you know, that word, uh, which has different meanings in different countries, but it's kind of a negative word for an older woman. Um, but tude, it's kind of like, you know, the attitude of a hag. The, the, uh, and, and, and it was just kind of, I wanted to revision the image that older women have of themselves and their power. And again, you know, you'll see in Foxfire Wolfskin, there are a couple of really powerful old women there. There's Baba Yaga, for sure. There's the Kaliach from the Irish and Scottish um, Gaelic Gaelic traditions. And, you know, women, older women in our native mythologies and folktales had power. And I don't mean power over. I mean, they had, they mattered in the world. They were actually the source of creation. They were it. They were what, were what held it together. They were the ones that wove the world into being. And how far have we come from that? Yes. So yes. what I'm interested in is how can you build that up again? You can't just go back to an old story and tell yourself a nice story about a powerful older woman and say, okay, I'm going to be that. It's more complicated than that. You've got to go back and look at how it happened that we became that way. And then how can we possibly start to unravel it? And I don't know all of the answers to that yet, because I, you know, I, I don't mm. think I will until I'm part of the way through the book. But that was what I was passionate about, because to me, we need, you know, a lot of indigenous um, cultures around the world have their grandmothers and respect mm. their grandmothers. Yes. We have lost that completely. Yes. In the world. 
And it's yes, not yes. just a question of one day waking up and saying, you know, we need it. Some work has to be done. Yes, and that's what I mean. We are we are your avatars. <clears throat> I wonder, <laughs> we are your avatars. And I, yes. Sandy, could this is a could you mention your children's book here, Sandy? I think Sharon would find yes. it your children's book intriguing. I um, wrote a children's book. I'm, my husband's actually going to illustrate it, and it's um, called Nana's Walking Stick. And I had read that attitudes towards age form in children by five years old that. Already at that young age, they have an idea of what an older person is like. And so I had, as part of that wilderness course, I had carved a walking stick and then used it as a teaching tool for the four directions and had done a lot of learning around that. And I was thinking about how badass a walking stick is. And yet in our culture, it's seen as a sign of weakness when you see someone with a walking stick. So I decided to write this children's book where Nana has this walking stick that has all these magical powers and she can, she can do things with her stick and that people, when people see her walking stick, they feel sorry for this, this woman with her that needs this stick. But when she gets out into the woods, she catches fish. She does everything with this stick and she's, she can get through, <laughs> cross rivers with her stick and so that's what the story is about her taking her grandchildren on this adventure and uh, her magical walking stick so and it's to try and break down some of those attitudes that we have and to say you know don't judge an older person by what looks like a perceived weakness it could be a magic walking stick it, it could and I think that part of the trick is to see somebody older as, as something Thing, somebody that a younger person wants to grow into if, if that makes sense you know mm-hmm. and right. not just as a role model not just as a nice grandmother figure to, to help you but just like I want to be that and you yeah. know I had that ever since I was a child curiously my favorite characters and fairy stories were never the princesses um or or even the feisty heroes which were common in you know Scottish and Irish accounts they were always the old women they were always the powerful old women mm. mostly in the woods um, who didn't mess with anybody, you know, if you wanted, yeah. if you needed to find them, you'd find them. But when yeah. you found them, you didn't, you didn't mess with them either. You know, they were right. not to be taken for granted. And it's just, I always wanted to be that always, always, mm. always, and always looked for stories where that character was there and found some, but probably not enough. And so I think to me, it's very much about capture the whole point of stories and myth is to capture people's imagination so that they can yes. envision something differently and you don't have to actually change the physical world because we can't make all of a sudden all old people into you know wonderful powerful uh creatures but to just revision it so that in your imagination it's real it has mm-hmm. power it's something you determine to be and it makes you look forward to a stage of life which can last a long time these days and which is so often written off we think that we have our last transition period in middle age we mm-hmm. don't. We've got this big one, you know. But mostly at the end of kind of at the end of menopause. I mean, menopause in itself is a, is a great transition initiatory period. But then we have this whole stepping off. Where do you step off after menopause? Right. What? Where do you step out of the dark cave into elderhood? That's the beginning right. of another story. It's not the end. It's the beginning of a whole other story. And we don't even see that, you know. No. And it's been so diminished, hasn't it? And um, we're all, the three of us are sitting on that right now about what that's going to mean. And I say rah-rah for us that we're all, we're all literally writing about it and speaking about how it looks for us rather than feeling diminished. We're stepping into that, that power. You, when you mentioned the imagination, I thought to myself, it has to be fueled, doesn't it? And the work that the three of us do, and certainly what you're going to do with Hagitude is going to have the education around it, but the creative imagination fuel, where does that fire come from, from you? I mean, do you dare to read something that is not related to your current project? And we always get into these questions near the end. What do you read for your imagination fuel? What's your Um, book um, love? My book love, do you know, one of my favorite One of my favorite set of books in the world, which is very relevant to this and which will enter Haggitude in a significant way, is an English uh, writer called Terry Pratchett, um, who was, uh, he's normally kind of written off sometimes as a comic writer. He was a very funny man, uh, but that often, because you write funny stuff, people think it's not serious. Uh, But anyway, to cut a long story short, in in a number of his books about um, a world which he called Discworld, um, he had witches. Um, He had witches whose power 
perfectly came from the land they occupied. So a granite witch, you know, drew her power from granite and was clearly a granite witch. A chalk witch possibly had no depth, you know, because chalk is a little bit kind of like loose around the edges. So there was this whole wonderful kind of mythology that he had underlying it. But he had a character called Granny Weatherwax. And Granny mm-hmm. Weatherwax was the witch of witches. And she was a bit of a crotchety old character. Um, she was a bit of a Baba Yaga in, um, in um, the story that you loved, um, Sandy, from Foxfire Wolfskin. And I found that incredibly inspiring. If I have a low period in my life, I go and I read those books again. <sighs> so to me, it is very much, I can't read contemporary novels about people in you know, middle-class suburbia having bad lives. I just can't. I have, that's not, I just, no. Um, I need stories that capture my imagination. It doesn't have to be great fantasy worlds, but something that makes me able to revision something better, different, <sighs> something that just makes the world go around because that's that's what these stories do they really do make the world go around and i think that's why when i was practicing as a psychologist you know i trained in all of the usual stuff cognitive behavioral therapy blah 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 that's really going to capture people's imagination um and then i i focused on my own love which was narrative psychology and working with story and it almost never failed where other therapies had because if you can capture somebody's mm. imagination who has a problem, you can help them see how that story they think they're living in might change. How the character that they thought was the baddie, actually, if looked at from a slightly different perspective, and if the story was written from her perspective, you know, that baddie that you think has ruined your life, actually might be completely different. And so you mm. empower people with story to see the world differently. And that the power of imagination is everything. And so to me, that's what, that's what all of this is about, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it doesn't really matter. You know, you're, you're holding these images up in front of people and saying, use these to transform their magic. Yes. Mm. This podcast is called Reframe Your Life. And that's exactly what we find as we're interviewing uh, writers and is that that is the power of story. And that's the power of even writing your own story is that it gives you an opportunity to revisit it and to see how you're telling that story and to tell it from a different perspective. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. We know you're stepping into Hagitude. Is Hagitude again with your glorious, wonderful September publishing is it called your publishing house it is um i'm not going anywhere else i i that they are just wonderful and um, hannah who runs it has um, a lot of experience she's run most of the major non-fiction lists in the west you know random house harper collins the collins list so very experienced but you know a group of women who do things differently they they don't have offices and the smart london life and what have you they just get together when they need to and a mm. huge amount of experience a huge amount of vision not constrained by corporate publishing culture and but still very pragmatic so i'm not going anywhere else uh, wonderful what a what a wonderful yes. publishing story that is and you know we we hear and i certainly see uh, so many not so wonderful publishing stories and that's glorious your books are beautifully produced by the way and um i encourage everyone to purchase from you or from the publisher because they get access to you and we love having our signed copies um and having that contact and um and i wanted to say how truly beautiful the cover for Foxfire Wolfskin is. It's uh, a complete reimagining of wolves in all the positive ways that has been a passion of mine for years um, in the work that I've done, is reimagining the uh, villains from centuries before, which uh, are not villains at all. And your stories do that. And the book production certainly did that. It is a stunning book. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And it's just out of paper book back now, so it's got a slightly different cover. Does uh, it? Based on some of the illustrations um, inside, but it, it is also, really? um, I think, uh, very, uh, very beautiful. So oh, it's, yes. Uh, very, very, very oh, lovely. lovely. Up here that, so that you can see it. I'm sorry, the oh, listeners can't, but... Um, that, oh, that is lovely. Yes. yes. I mean, if, and if we have a moment, um, can, how did the marriage between the story and the illustrator uh, happen in your publishing tale? Were they, did you choose the illustrator to work with? Did you know her? How did that happen? No, I didn't know her at all. We were looking for someone who could do kind of fairy tale illustrations without being too twee, you know, without yeah. being too pretty. And uh, my publisher found um, some examples of her. I think she was quite, I think she's quite young. I don't know her personally, quite young, kind of not, not too long out of college and um, uh, or training um, to be an artist. And she just, she just hit the nail on the head. I mean, they're, they're quirky, um they have a very distinctive 
I think kind of you know like the voice I think the voices are distinctive well so are her images huh. and they've the inside images have now made their way onto the front cover but put into that cover by the original the designer of the original hardback who made the cover that you you know that you Isn't love that? so much the red one so mm-hmm. it's a kind of co- collaboration if you like yeah, you know, this great. selection of art, and I'm, we won't keep you much longer, but this selection of art is something that I encourage people to step into your coursework around. Uh, in fact, I've been so captivated by some of the imagery that I just recently purchased some of the work of, I hope I say this right, Ala Sank, T-S-A-N-K, because in one of the elements of the course, you have her work. And this again, steps into the elderhood images. She has this blending of of women and nature, and I can't explain them, but I encourage everyone to look at your other media, meaning your coursework and your glorious, beautiful website, because your selection of imagery to go with your work is, I think, um, very, it's, it's more than captivating. It's another teaching in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And um, that has been really meaningful for me. Oh, thank you. I love rich colours and beautiful images. So it uh, again, it's all part of the process, isn't it? So it is. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice completely. So, Patty, <laughs> would you? Uh... Okay, we know we know what you're working on next. But where would you like to send people to find out more about you? We will have lots of this in our listener notes. Um, but tell us where you like to um, first connect with people. Do you send them perhaps to your website? And where should they could they purchase your work? Um, definitely my website. It's got everything and very much more than you ever want to know. So it's it got information about books, about courses. It's got I have what I hope are help, helpful resources on fairy tales and um, book group notes for the books. And um, and it's got a blog, which um, I occasionally write. Uh, so yeah, that's, there's that SharonBlackie.net and everything is there. And, and I, I would tell you it is uh, the, your newsletter that you do produce mm-hmm. is a glorious taste of what's going on in your life as well as your teaching and your work. And I always enjoy hearing what's happening in the place that you're living. So thank you for that mm-hmm. as well. Uh, yes. Thank you. Newsletters are important to me because I try, I, I, to me, they're a way of connecting with people. It's not just a question of selling stuff. I mean, obviously, you know, we all have to make a living and so you want to put things in there, but uh, they're not sales pitches to me. They're in a mm. genuine attempt to kind of communicate with anybody who's interested in the work. And in terms of buying books, really anywhere, you know, my publisher does sell them. Um, they can be expensive if you're overseas because um, they clearly don't have the distribution networks, but they're available in all the online um, outlets and um, in um, proper brick and mortar bookshops as well. So fantastic. Anyway. Yes. Just as a wrap up, I want to repeat the title one more time. We've been speaking to Dr. Sharon Blackie about Foxfire, Wolfskin and other stories of shape shifting women um, among my favorite reads of last year and this year. So get your copy soon. Thank you, yes. Dr. Sharon Blackie. Thank you. Thank, it's been great. Thank you.